You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to Strange Familiars, covering a range of topics from the paranormal, cryptids, mythology, the occult, hauntings, UFOs, weird history, and folklore. Wherever you are listening to Strange Familiars, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, or any other service, please subscribe and click the like button, and share the Strange Familiars pages and stories on Facebook and other social media. If you have experienced something strange, or if you know a story you would like us to cover, email strangefamiliarspodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars. And of course, you can always find us at strangefamiliars.com. So welcome to episode 18. We're going to be talking about the Alba Twitch. James is here with me. James has a little allergy thing going on. So, Oh my gosh, my allergies are horrible. As soon as we came back from Monstermania last week, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah, it's bad. It seems like every time it gets warm again after it's cooled off, then uh, it Ugh. reactivates allergies. Speaking of Monstermania, we did Monstermania last week. Yes, had a blast. Three days of meeting new folks and talking uh, about all matters of interesting occurrences. Got to collect a lot of really cool stories, meet a lot of people. Even got interviewed by another podcast while we were there. Yeah, that was the, is it called the Poolside Podcast? Yeah, the Poolside Podcast. And I also got the chance to bump elbows with a celebrity. Got to meet and talk briefly with 
with Rose McGowan. Of course, I didn't have a recorder on me, but uh, that was pretty cool. She shared a little a little story. All in all, the weekend was a it was a good time. It was uh, it was really great getting to like have that experience. I've never been on the other side of of one of those conventions. I'm usually there boarding movies, so it was cool to kind of be on the other side of that. On behalf of the cast, you know, if we if we met you there, it was great to meet you, and we hope that uh, you know if you listen to the show, you're you're enjoying it. I really enjoyed it. I'm having done I don't know umpteen paranormal fests at this point. This was different. This was geared more towards horror movies and stuff, and we decided we'd take a chance. You know, and maybe horror people like Bigfoot and stuff and paranormal stuff too, <laughs> and it seems like they do. Uh, we we like you said, we got a lot of great stories. One of which will relate because it's on topic tonight, and some other great Bigfoot stories, met some great people, just some really, really oh, nice sure. people. Some listeners, made some new listeners, I think. So, uh, yeah, all in yeah, all, for sure. It was a great time. Like you said, thanks everybody for, if you came out for us, thank you. If you, if you ended up meeting us there and, uh, if you start- ended up traveling to the far reaches of the convention and found our, <laughs> found our table, thank you so much for doing so. We were literally the last <laughs> table there, but, uh, no, it was good. End of the line. <laughs> but yeah, if you're a listener that we picked up at the convention, welcome aboard. Thanks for listening. And good thanks, to have you. Thanks, of course, to all our regular listeners. But yeah. let's get into Alba Twitches. So, first of all, we're having the Alba Twitch Festival. That's going to be on October 14th. It's a Saturday. By the time this airs, it will be. Ne- very next Saturday, in other words. Yeah, you'll be learning about this very last minute, like. <laughs> <laughs> but we, should, we have mentioned it in previous shows, but. Should be a good time. I heard on Where Did the Road Go, Soraya was talking about it. He said he's coming. That'll be cool. Yeah, we can have a, a big meet and greet there. You can meet us, you can meet Soraya. A bunch of paranormal podcasts representing there. So if you enjoyed the podcast and if you want to meet the folks behind them, if you want to meet us. Come on out. Look for the Strange Familiars banner. We'll have a table there. I'm giving a talk on Bigfoot in Pennsylvania. Colin Schneider is our main speaker. We'll be talking to him a little bit later in this episode. He's going to be giving a talk on other little people, like the Alba Twitch has found in folklore throughout the world. We have other speakers. There's paranormal vendors. There's artists there. There's food, live music. Stone Breath is going to be playing a set in some form. There's a zombie. I heard that's a really good band. <laughs> there's, there's a zombie beauty contest there are trolley rides you can take a trolley ride up to Chickie's Rock where the Alba Twitch are said to live and of course this is a family friendly event so you can bring your kids to this they have a little Alba Twitch thing that kids can get their face painted and uh, put their face through the, the painting and get a picture of them being an Alba Twitch so it should be a great day so come on out October 14th it's in Columbia, Pennsylvania and they close the street down. They close down Locust Street. A block or two of Locust Street is closed down. And it'll be there. It'll be at the Columbia Creative Factory. And it'll be at the Columbia Historical Society. But if you come to the town of Columbia, you find Locust Street, you'll find all the events from there. I saw the, the t-shirts for the festival this year look fantastic. They, they look great. And you can get them there. After the festival, I'll have a few to sell via my website and so forth. But come on out and get the t-shirts there they benefit the columbia historical society the whole event benefits the columbia historical preservation society so it's a good cause for sure yeah and uh it's a great little town right on the susquehanna river it's uh between york and lancaster county it's on the lancaster side it's just a great day it's always a great time 
So come on out and see us. Rain or shine, if it's raining, we'll be shoved into the Creative Factory and the Historical Society, but events will still continue. But hopefully it won't rain, and we'll be out on the street, and it'll be a great day. We're looking forward to seeing you. And that's in celebration of the Albatwitch, which is our own little creature that we have here. They call it the Little Bigfoot. Maybe you can break down for the uninitiated listeners a little bit of the history of of the Albatwitch here in, in Pennsylvania. Sure. Well, let's tackle the name first, because... Sure. This gets misreported a lot, and in fact, in the... I believe I've misreported it. The information for the the festival as well, they claim it comes from Apple Snitch, but it's probably not where the name comes from. They're known to steal and eat apples and and even throw apples at people. So I think Apple Snitch is is a good way to remember the name Albatwitch, but I believe the name actually comes from the German. Now, this is a very... German area. A lot of a lot of Germans and Austrians and Swiss German moved to this area. That's the Pennsylvania Dutch. Of course, they were not Dutch. They were German. It's just people mispronouncing Deutsch that they got the, the kind of anglicized name of the Pennsylvania Dutch. They were German speakers. And if you look into German, the name for Elf is Alb. So to me, that almost solves the mystery right there. So it starts with Alb, the name Albatwitch. So that's your elf. And there's a German verb, Entwischen, which means to escape. And it's a particular kind of escaping. It's kind of like escaping in a smooth and gliding kind smooth of manner. escape. So you have this Albatwitch becomes a sort of escaping elf. The gliding thing is, is interesting as well because if you listen to Bigfoot reports, a lot of people would describe it as sort of gliding across the, the ground as if it, it doesn't even impact the ground, like almost like a cross-country skier. They'll describe the way it moves. So I found that interesting as well, that it's that particular verb, that entwition. So Albatwitch, escape elf, not apple snitch as far as I can tell. Sure. I believe that I had even for a while been correlating those two. And, and for a while. <laughs> Potentially before, improperly. <laughs> before um, a German friend helped me with the language, I thought... He he had told me Alb was elf, and I thought it was maybe a compound word that was English and German compound words. So it was Alb for elf and witch. So it was, you know, having to do with the reported supernatural powers of the creatures. I thought it was basically an elf witch. But when he found that verb, that entwinchen verb, it seems that's the most logical explanation. Yeah. It seems most likely that Alb is the root word, the, the elf. So the Albatwitch were these or are, people are still seeing him today, three to four foot tall, very thin, hair-covered, bipedal humanoids, man-apes, something like that. And they are seen along the Susquehanna River. They were reportedly hunted to extinction in the 1800s, but as I said, people have continued to see them up until today. In fact, when we were at Haldeman Mansion, Rick Fisher told me of another sighting that, that he had, another report. He's taken, I think, more Alba Twitch reports than anyone else. And he told me he had gotten another somewhat recent one in the 2000s, which makes, I think, about, you know, maybe five or six reports. There's not a great deal of these reports. But the interesting thing is these creatures go back before Europeans arrived here. The Susquehannock Indians had paintings of them on their shields 
Now, a, a lot of times they'll call them, they say they'll have devils painted on their shields, but these are these are hairy, small little creatures they have painted on their they shields. They look like monkeys. Yeah. I mean, it looks like they have the depictions of, of small monkeys on their on the shields. Yeah, so it's very much, we seem to be talking about the same creatures. And there was a settlement, interestingly enough, and some graves of Susquehannock Indians found, I think, at the foot of Chickie's Rock. Right, I do believe I had read uh, on more than a few occasions uh, of the, I guess, remains of some uh, structures there and that the, belonged to the Susquehannocks. The Susquehannock Indians, their language is lost to us, so we don't know what they called the creatures. Their mythology is lost to us for the most part. We know that they knew about these creatures, but we don't know whether they considered them animals or some sort of supernatural creature. But we do have reports of the Susquehanna, and they are reported as being these really formidable people. Interestingly enough, they said the average male Susquehannock Indian was something like seven foot tall and incredibly muscular. They were known to be really fierce warriors, which is really interesting that these fierce warriors would then paint these little creatures on their shields, you know, that when you want to paint something on your war sure. shield, you want oh, something yeah, yeah. that's scary and powerful and, and brings wolf them or the bear. Yeah. And here, and <laughs> here they are painting these Albatwitch on their shields, these, these little creatures, which does jive with the fact, I mean, a lot of first nations people have said uh, in regards to Albatwitch versus Bigfoot. If you see a Bigfoot in the woods, you you better be careful and you better watch yourself and it's probably best to head on out. But uh, clear. if you see one of these little people, one of these Alba Twitch creatures run, get out and get out quick because they're known to be ferocious. And that goes across the country. These little creatures are just said to be just ferocious. Right. The phrase Alba Twitch is something that seems to be for the most part, part of that old Pennsylvania German you know, coming through, uh, is is it a term that's used in any other parts of the country that you're aware of? No, that's completely local. It's, it's ours. Yeah, and... For the most part. Think- the creatures are spoken of, and there are stories throughout the First Nations people of the little people. Right. Um, but here we actually have a, a name for them, <laughs> where we have two two different peoples that occupied the same area that were most likely onto the same creature. Right. It seems like they're talking about the same thing. Like I said, we have unfortunately lost the Susquehannock language, so we don't know what they called them. But as far as I can tell, the Pennsylvania Dutch were reporting these things from an early time. And always around the Susquehanna River, it seems, there are a few reports that range a good way away from there, but not terribly far from the river. There's a report from the early 2000s just outside of Red Lion, a woman observed a creature four foot tall, covered in gray sparse hair with a round head. It was running through a field. She stopped and observed it for several minutes. She said it had a, a round head that was smaller than the head of a child of the same height. It wasn't a child. In other words, it had a, a head that looked smaller than, than a child's head would have been. Huh. And It's very interesting. That reminds me of a story that we had come, come across the table while we were at the convention. Uh, maybe we could get to that at some point. Yeah, well, we're bouncing around through the timeline of sightings here. Yeah. Let's just hit that while we're talking about it. So yeah. we'll, we'll just bounce back and forth. So we're at, sure. we're at the table, and this guy comes up, and we have the Bigfoot stuff prominently displayed. We've got my books there. We have the Boggy Creek print and the, the Bluff Creek print. 
both there. So the guy kind of observes the Bigfoot stuff, and he says, I believe in this, or, or something like that. Some, in some way, he indicated that he believed in this, and he said, but nobody, sure. nobody believes my story. And we said, well, tell us. We're ready to listen. So, so go ahead and relate what he said then. So he sort of sidesteps to the end of the table, as though like maybe he didn't want to broadcast it to everybody that was kind of hanging out at the convention. It starts kind of telling us about an incident that he had had driving. And do you remember what state that he said he was in? It was in Maryland. It was in Maryland. Hopefully, if, if he did uh, take the card and is listening to the show, please get in contact with us, because we would love to to chat with you about this more so if, if you'd be willing to come on here and talk to us. Yeah, it'd be a lot or, better or, or, to get the story directly from him. Yeah, but to the, the short and skinny of it, he had been driving at night and hit what he described as what he thought to be uh, something the size of a monkey that looked like a monkey. He thought that he'd, he'd hit a baby Bigfoot. He that was, was, I believe, what he said is what he, what he said he thought he had hit. He was convinced that it was a, a young Bigfoot. It was bipedal, you know, covered in hair. He hit it with his car. He, he went back and he, and he didn't find anything. He had yeah. no knowledge of these other creatures, that they, they could right. even, even exist. So when we kind of pointed out, I had some, you know, Albatwitch prints, prints and, and T-shirts and, of course, a poster for the festival there. That was, yeah. you know, it was all news to him. He had never even considered that it could be something else. That was really interesting. What really stood out with that brief conversation was how genuinely upset he was relaying the story. Like I could tell that it really bothered him what had happened, uh, what, what he had experienced. I believe he said he had gone back and there wasn't anything. Yeah. He turned there wasn't around. anything there. I think he said he turned around and went back or I'm not sure if there was a period of time that elapsed. Whatever the case. Yeah. He, he, he found no trace of, of whatever it was. Really, really, really intriguing story. Yeah. So, possible Alba Twitch in Maryland? Yeah, possible. Mm. It was near a uh, river. I forget which yeah. body of water it was. I said, was it near when near a creek or a river? He said, yep, near a river. I, it wasn't the Susquehanna, but I forget exactly which body of water he said it was. Yeah. There's a really cool sighting that I found, and I can't find the source for it again, I found it before I went on Sasquatch Chronicles to talk about little people with Wes and Duke. And there's a local sighting that it was a guy relating a story from when he was a boy. And he said his brother was pinned in a tree by one of these creatures who had kind of pinned him in a tree and was he was face to face with him in a very sinister kind of stance. And the boy's brother intervened kind of ran and, and I think yelled at the creature or something and the Albatwitch fled off through the trees. That was a really intense encounter and it was certainly the most intense modern-ish encounter. I, I believe this had happened at some point in the 70s or 80s but I can't I cannot find the source for this report anymore. Just my notes on it. Chickie's Rock has been kind of known as the home of these creatures. I always say now that like take it as the sort of symbolic home of them. It's not the only place they've been reported. It's not the only place they've been seen, but it is sort of the place that was known to have them because people would go picnicking there in the 1800s and they report having their food stolen, especially apples. These creatures seem extremely fond of apples. Sometimes they would have the apples thrown back at them. They would be stolen and then pelted with their own apples again. 
So they became known to harass people at picnics. And people to this day have claimed to take apples in and have them stolen. The creatures were said to live more in the trees than on the land. So they, they're observed more in trees as opposed to, to walking on the ground. Really interesting, there's two sounds that seem to be associated with them. One is a sound like a whip people report. I've kind of often wondered if that was maybe branch breaking. You know, people report Bigfoot snapping branches a lot as a sort of a, they think it's like a power display. Like he'll, he'll just snap a big branch out of anger or to get people's attention or to say, you know, don't follow me, whatever the case. And I've often wondered if, since these are smaller creatures, if they're snapping smaller branches, then that might account for the whip-like sound. But there's often a whip-like sound reported, like a snapping whip kind of sound. And the other is whistling. I found a little bit of local folklore recently that talked about the, the whistle of the Albatwitch and it said if you found the right person, it was a hunter talking, and he said he, he knew it and it was this very intricate whistle and they call it a welcome whistle. And if you've found the right person to teach you this welcome whistle, you could learn it and you could actually call the creatures out with this welcome whistle. But That's they, very interesting. They were also known for to whistle and to lure people out into the woods. And it's another one of these stories where people follow the whistles and they're never heard from again. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's very interesting. Well, there are a lot of you know native stories with regard to the Sasquatch whistling as well, if I'm correct. Oh, yeah. Um, the whistle seems to be a, a theme with these hairy folks, big and tall and short and small. The Megamoisus, which seem to be... Again, with all these things, it's hard to say we're talking about the same creature, but the, the Megamoisus, which are from the Northeast, I believe, and they're reported to actually play whistles, like to have actual, you know, not to make whistles with their mouth, but to actually play some kind of whistle implement. But the story is the same with them. They were luring people out into the woods, and then they would never be seen or heard from again, which ties in with the whole weird, you know, missing 411 thing and, and all that folklore of missing people and the fairies, you know, people going off and following them and never returning. Well, that's something that seems to be somewhat of a common story with regard to that geography of Chickie's Rock and that Helm Wrightsville area to begin with. There are a lot of stories of people disappearing, a lot of weird tragedies sort of tied to that area. Yeah, um, it's important to note that Chickie's Rock is directly across the river from the Helm Hills, which we talk about with Toad Road and... Yeah, the haunt, these these the, are very close together. The haunted Akamak is there. It's not worlds away from Site Seven, which we keep hinting about. Um, sure. Which we have a show coming on Site Seven where <laughs> there's so much there, and we don't know what we're dealing with. So we're it, it's a it's we're trying to figure out the best way to present that show. Yeah. But uh, we have a ton of audio from one site. We've got more theories than we have answers with that but we the site yeah. seven stuff is coming up folks we're not super extremely far, close yeah we're not super far from that so this whole area is just bound up with weirdness beyond the albatwitch again it's right across the river but never have these albatwitch been reported around toad road or in the helm hills you get bigfoot reports there but the albatwitch on the york county side the reports seem to be south of that area south of the, the helm area further down along the river i meant to ask you before have you ever read or heard of any stories with regard to the the pennsylvania dutch leaving offerings for the abbot leaving them fruit 
I don't know if it's exclusively Pennsylvania Dutch, but often people say take apples with you to Chickie's Rock and, and leave them apples. Uh-huh. So it's it was almost like, like yeah, That's take, very interesting. take an off- offering with you. And Chickie's Rock is a really weird place. Now, we, we did a patron episode on the River Witch of Marietta. Marietta, of course, is right there. That's just north of Chickie's Rock. It's we, a whole lot of weirdness in a really small, small, like, sort of locale. Yeah, and we have to talk about that because it's just too much in this one area to ignore. The area of Chickie's Rock is a very populated park. This is why I say I sort of consider it the, the symbolic home of the Albatwitch. If it's a supernatural creature, I guess it doesn't matter how populated the park is. It wouldn't really matter. If it's a natural creature or something in between that we don't understand, the park is very populated. It's what extremely they- populated. They have a they have two pretty big. Well, they have one really large lot at one particular spot. There's a couple of different spots you can pop on at. There are two really big lots and like one smaller overflow lot. And pretty much as soon as the weather is palatable like people are just the place is just crowded there's people parking like on the road on the shoulder a lot of people a lot of traffic a lot a lot of a lot of folks in there at one time yeah and the park is longer than it is wide it goes along the river for a few miles i think but it's only about what maybe two acres wide something like that yeah it's yeah it's, it's it's not very wide at all there's not a lot of woods left there are some there's not a lot of woods that don't have paths like all crisscrossing through them right so it's hard to imagine that a natural creature is making its habitat here and breeding and people haven't completely uh discovered it and are or that there's not sightings like you know more more often like hey i saw something weird you know these albatross sightings are very very rare very extremely rare much rarer than Bigfoot sightings. And there was a Bigfoot, not a sighting, but a Bigfoot encounter, something that sounds like a Bigfoot in Chickie's Rock as well. I think it was a BFRO report. Somebody was right at the mouth of Chickie's Creek as it uh, goes into the Susquehanna, and something was heaving big rocks down at them, and I think it screamed as well. Never saw it, but certainly corresponds with known Bigfoot behavior. Yeah, for sure. There's mystery lights associated with this place. There's tons of ghost stories. I mean, too many ghost stories to mention in one show. There's ghost yeah. stories with First Nations people. There's ghost stories with Amish people. There's ghost stories with people who got killed in trains. There's the weird <sighs> ghost stories about the 10-foot, 12-foot tall mummies, whatever they were, with daggers sticking out of their head. Which I have a theory on. Maybe that's another show. Yeah, I, I, I mean, <laughs> there's a whole theory of that we have to explore. Not to mention all of the modern-day deaths that are associated with that area. It seems like it's very few and far between that you do a whole year and not have there be some sort of untimely demise at Chickie's Rock. Both accidental deaths and suicides. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's an odd place. It really, It really is. So, it's so interesting to me that sort of the idea of like there's this place that people were drawn to and they go hiking and they're you know out being in touch with nature, but it's also this place that has a lot of strangeness tied up into it as well as tons and tons of tragedy right. as well. And there's just people walking and with their backpacks and their water bottles and 
worth mentioning <laughs> like, there there was seven iron furnaces within oh. the bounds of Chickie's Rock at some point. I think there were nine total between Columbia and Marietta. Seven fall within what is now the park uh, of Chickie's Rock. Now, are any of the, any of the foundations for those still there, or have they been pretty much erased at this point? Quite a few of the foundations are. You you can see them if you walk along what's it called the River Trail there. Right. You can see them off in the woods. There is one furnace that is mostly still there i mean it's quite a ruin but you can still see the shape of the furnace and that's as you get closer to columbia right right along the river trail yeah lots of furnaces out in that area yeah there's a really neat iron furnace museum right as you get towards marietta on that river trail and they have a lot of information about all the the iron furnaces there and they have it's right across from some ruins that you can actually go over to. So I think there were fur- several furnaces and some kind of factory or something there, some- something to do with processing iron right there. And they have all kinds of ruins and stuff there that you can actually go through. And they encourage you, if you find slag, you can go ahead and keep the slag if you find any slag there, which is pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. I went in and was an iron nerd. I think I talked to the museum guy more about iron than, you know, <laughs> he's a volunteer. <laughs> I think he, you know, he, he was he was done talking iron by the time I was talking with him because I've I've become quite fascinated with the topic, especially in the, the local iron industry because of Cadoras Furnace. And again, this is right across the river from all that. It's such a tightly packed area with so much weird stuff. If the river didn't separate it, it would be pretty much the same area, you know, that that we're talking yeah. about here. It's that's how close we are. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. The river's, what, a mile wide, something like that? Yeah, it's really not It's not excessively wide at all. Yeah, so right across from the Helm Hills, from these other things, the Haunted Accomac Inn, there's so much just packed into this one area. And Chickie's Rock just adds a, a whole other angle to that. And they make the claim of being the most haunted place in Pennsylvania. I think Gettysburg would argue with that. but uh, um, I think that they would. <laughs> But lots of weird stuff happens in, in Chickies, including these Albatwitch things. Yeah, it's so. quite an array, that's for sure. If you're enjoying Strange Familiars, if you like what we do, please consider becoming a patron. You can go to patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. Patreons help us make the show, and if we get enough, you're going to help us make it a weekly show. And we'd really like to bring you Strange Familiars on a weekly basis. There are many different levels at Patreon. You can go in at $3 and just get extra content. We try to do extra shows every month. This month, we should ha- hopefully have a two-part show for patrons. 
if you go in at higher levels, you can get things like Strange Familiar's pins, patches, vinyl stickers, t-shirts. There's all different kinds of levels if you want to support us. Again, that's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. If you are currently listening to the show and you're enjoying it, please consider going over to iTunes. Say some nice things. If you hit like and subscribe wherever you're listening, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, wherever it is, and if you can give a nice review, those five-star likes, those five-star reviews, they actually do a lot to get the podcast in front of more people. That's right. But however you're supporting the show, thank you very much, and thank you for listening. And we'll get on with our interview with Colin Schneider, the Crypto Kid. Tonight we're talking with Colin Schneider, the Crypto Kid. He has a show of the same name, the Crypto Kid, on WCJV. It's a radio show, but it's also available in podcast format. And Colin, your show's on weekly? Yes, every Monday night at 8 p.m., and you can listen live at uh, WCJVradio.com. That's Eastern Standard Time. There was a little hiccup with WCJV. They kind of took a little break, but they're back, and everything's up and running again now. Back and better than ever. Your show and and all the others are back and and running again. Yep. Good. Um, We're doing good. I'm real excited. Excellent. And the Crypto Kid, you cover cryptozoology and related phenomenon on your show? Yeah, a lot of what I focus on on um, the Crypto Kid is trying to take some of these weirder aspects or lesser known points of view within cryptozoology and bring them out to a wider audience while still making it really approachable for new listeners or people that aren't super familiar with the literature. I do a lot of stuff with folklore and just some weirder stuff, but I also try to stay as grounded as possible in science. Yeah, that's a tightrope to walk. <laughs> it is. <laughs> and it's impossible to avoid the weird stuff. I have uh, more respect for people who cover both because, to me, you just can't ignore it. You know, if you're going to cover the apparent physical aspects, the footprints and the hair and the and the scat, and ignore the weirder stuff, to me, it just, you, you know, you're missing a potential part of the puzzle. Maybe they're not related, but until we know for sure one way or another, I think we have to talk about both aspects. Sure. I completely agree. I feel otherwise it's kind of counterproductive to the whole sort of bringing that out, you know, to an audience that needs to be presented in all of its weirdness to a degree. If you really just want to talk about an ape in the woods, you know, those those pesky mystery lights are a real problem, but they're there. You know, they're there in so many of the reports, you know, as part of the story, at least for now. Maybe we can separate it at some point, but for now... We're talking about multiple strange things. And tonight we're going to be talking about little people or hairy dwarves. What's what's your preferred name for them, Colin? Honestly, I like to call them diminutive humanoids the most. Uh, that's my favorite word for it. But that really you know turns a lot of people off because it just is very long. <laughs> so I, I use dwarf a lot. Because I found going to conferences and talking about some of this stuff, if you bring up dwarves, a lot of people seem to have stories about dwarves. But if you say diminutive humanoids, they just kind of look at you weird. When I'm talking about this stuff to a wider audience, I try to keep language light. I'm not a huge fan of little people because then you, while there is a lot of crossover with fairy lore with diminutive humanoid stuff – it really, when you just say little people, you automatically think of the generic fairy. 
So I, I try to avoid using the term little people. That's interesting because a, a lot of First Nations tribes will use the term little people, which is, mm-hmm. which is why I, sort is of, I default to that. Just because that's I've been on Sasquatch Chronicles a number of times talking about it, and it's that seems to be the terminology that is used from people who, who have taken their stories, you know, from First Nations and so forth. That is true, but what I look at is these creatures from a larger, more worldwide aspect. And what's really interesting is when you look at First Nations legends of the littler humanoids, they do follow very closely with the patterns that we see in uh, European fairy lore. So I think that using the little people term in that specific example is um, pretty accurate. I just, when I'm talking just hairy humanoids that are shorter in stature, use dwarves as a general description. And Albatwitch are one of these. Real quick, Colin's going to be a speaker at the Albatwitch Festival. You are our featured speaker, which is really cool. And uh, it'll be awesome to see you again and hear your topic. And, and your topic's going to be on these diminutive humanoids, yes? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to be speaking about. I think I titled the uh, presentation A Not-So-Diminutive Look at Dwarves Around the World. I'm pretty excited. That's great. And <laughs> we'll be getting into some of that information tonight, but people should come out to Albatwitch Day to get a, get a real in-depth talk from Colin on it. Are you going to be doing the PowerPoint? with with your uh, presentation and so forth? I always use PowerPoints. Um, I think it's a really great way to get people involved. And even if they're not super into what you're talking about, they can kind of just glaze off and just look at the pictures you have up. No, I um, think you'll f- sometimes they'll get some information out of it. I think you'll find a receptive audience there. I spoke last year and it was a great audience. I think it'll be a good Good day. I think you'll you'll have a good reception. And I saw your presentation at the East Coast Paracon about a year ago now, right? Yeah, 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 it was about a year ago. And actually, it was a pretty similar topic that I talked about there. I really enjoyed it, and people should come out and see Colin speak on October 14th. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And let's get back into the Albatwitch. So have you collected any specific stories about the Albatwitch yourself? Well, no, for a couple different reasons. First, I'm not in Pennsylvania, um, especially not that part of Pennsylvania. So when I bring up the Albert Witch, um, not not many people get that connection. And if they have had encounters, they don't think about it could be an Albert Witch because they don't they they didn't encounter the thing there. Or I haven't done a lot of discussion on this topic as much lately because I've been focusing on the topic of my upcoming book that's going to happen sometime soon. So I haven't been getting a lot of reports about this topic. A lot of what I do is folklore or um, historical accounts. And concerning the Albert Witch, I don't have a ton because it is some something that you, Tim, have been doing for a while, and I know several other researchers have covered it. So it's not something that I feel just by delving further into it and just rewriting other stories, I can really contribute a lot to it. I do have quite a few from other small uh, little people around the world, though. And these things have a lot in common. I, I mean, at least, like, if you look at the Megamoisus or the Pukwudgies versus the Albatwitch, there's there seems to be a lot of things in common with, with these stories that if we're not talking about the same thing, they at least share similar characteristics we can say yeah i think that's a fair assessment the pukwudgie 
is quite interesting to me because there are a couple different versions of it. One that's similar to um, a Bigfoot description, you know, the Albert Witch, that just is kind of this this hairy dwarf creature that wanders around in the woods and is seen sometimes, and it can be can throw rocks at people. Sometimes it's a little more aggressive. But there's also this really interesting legend, a series of legends concerning the Pukwudgies that sounds very similarly to a lot of um, European fairy lore. Some of the abilities that the Pukwudgies are supposed to have, they're described as only being like five inches tall, um, not hairy at all, and looking actually more or less like short humans. And they're said to have magic bows and arrows. It's just quite interesting. Was it the Pukwudgies were said to, or with, I might be confusing with the Megamoesus, one of them was said to have whistles. I think that was the Megamoesus. And they were to lure people out in the woods. Albatwitch whistled. Now, they didn't say they had whistles, but they said they would whistle to lure people out in the woods. So you get this, this sort of drumbeat that goes you know, through these different entities, for lack of a better name. Well, the whistle's rather interesting because when you look at stories of the Agagwe from Central Africa... The whistle is said to be how these um, creatures communicate. And they're described almost exactly like what the Albert Witch has been described as. So that's quite interesting. And, uh, of course, the Aren Pendek from Sumatra has had uh, several encounters with it where the creatures were said to be whistling. Oh, see, I didn't know that. I knew, I, I knew that the descriptions were, were kind of similar. I ha- hadn't heard the whistling about the uh, Orang Pendek. That's really interesting. There is supposed to be what's known as a welcome whistle with the Albatwitch. Supposedly, if you find the right hunter, they can teach you this welcome whistle, and it will allow you to call them out. This is a complex series of whistles. To, really? Yeah, yeah. That is interesting, because I've talked to several people. John Tenney is a researcher from Michigan, and he tells a story about this guy that contacted him about this elf that's that has been in his backyard for a while and he has various encounters with the elf and the elf is said to be just a short very short like almost only about a foot tall hairy it's actually hooved little humanoid thing and he he's said to uh, be able to draw it to where he is by singing and that's rather interesting i remember tenny talked about that at the uh, dogman symposium last year that was quite fascinating. Yeah, and get, this all sounds like fairy lore. I mean, you it know, does. Yeah, it, it, it has its uh, the echoes, you know, through time and and through folklore from these other places. It's endlessly fascinating, and uh, I blame you and Joshua Cutchin for <laughs> <laughs> getting me tied into that whole thing. No, I'm, I had some interest in it before, but you guys certainly started pointing out these, you know, these echoes through time or this this drumbeat rather that, that goes through it all that that's really gotten me fascinated with the idea these little people are found around the world yes is there any continent that they aren't located on to your knowledge antarctica because penguins would probably have slaughtered them by now if they were there <laughs> no but yeah the, there are only been like a handful of just any kind of strange creature report in Antarctica, and sure. certainly not any kind of mystery humanoid. Yeah, and I mean, and that might be simply because there aren't enough people to witness whatever's going on there. 
So China has them. I know um, they're all across Europe. UK has them. Of course, in America, we have several different varieties. What I know from the First Nations people in the Southwest, I think they just call them little people or even sometimes dwarves. And I don't yep. know if, if that's an accurate translation of their native name for them. I'm not sure, but that's just what I've gotten you know, from stories and so forth. Well, down by Mexico, there's some fairly extensive stories of the uh, Duende, which is really interesting because there are a couple different versions. Um, and that's Spanish well, for goblin, isn't it, or, or roughly? Uh, yeah, 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 as far as I know. And it sounds closer to um, actually a mischievous leprechaun in a lot of the folklore, but people report littler, hairy creatures, and they say it's the Duende. And the leprechaun thing is really interesting because, uh, who was it? Somebody was pointing, reporting on a, I think a Navajo reservation, leprechaun sightings, which is mm-hmm. just really bizarre. I mean, the, and, and that's how they were describing them. I turned up very recently from Delta some leprechaun reports, which is just south of here. It's just an odd thing, this weird stuff. It all fits together. A rather interesting series of stories, creature name, whatever, that has not gotten a lot of attention since Ivan T. Sanderson talked about them in, in his uh, Abominable Snowmen book. It's called The Little Red Men of the Delta. Kentucky, Tennessee area, kind of branched out somewhere else, but uh, that was generally where the descriptions were. And Sanderson said the creatures were about the size of a 10-year-old child. They were covered in red reddish orange hair that was incredibly thick they had a dark gray face and they kind of resembled bipedal orangutans um and like the albert witch they were said to do uh whistling as a communication (laughs) yeah see there's just so many common factors between these it's hard to uh not to draw comparisons i feel like there's there has to be like very distinctly different things that are happening because in some places we're talking about things being measured by inches, some things being measured by, you know, just a couple feet, three apples tall, you know what I mean? Or like yeah. the size of a 10-year-old. It, it, it seems like perhaps there's a lot of different things that are sort of like under that under that banner. <laughs> you know? Well, I think, I think a handful of these cases... Now, I'm going to preface this with uh, pointing out that um, explaining any kind of mystery with another mystery is a logical fallacy, and I try really hard to avoid doing that. But this has been brought up quite a few times, and I think it's an interesting idea that does deserve to be you know, mentioned at least. A lot of researchers feel that the si- these sightings of these dwarf creatures are just the young of uh, Bigfoot. That's certainly an interesting idea, but... We haven't proven Bigfoot yet, so it would be a little hard to just kind of say, well, it's got these sightings have to be its young. And also, you don't have a fairly widespread amount of sightings that follows the patterns of Bigfoot sightings. Instead, what you have is localized areas like where the Albert Witch is said to be, or where the little red delta, the little red men of the delta are said to be. The sightings are consistent. But they aren't seen widespread enough to be logically, you know, baby Bigfoot. And they're not tend to be seen with adult Bigfoot creatures. Yeah, right. So 
to me, that's the huge thing. When when you see, I mean, you have these multiple reports of these small things without adults. You know, if if we're detected, they're children. They're not seen with adults. I mean, I can't think of a case where they were. I know of one or two, but they were never put into you know dwarf stuff. They were just automatically scooped up by uh, Bigfoot researchers. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I keep thinking about the fact that like with fossil records and such like to believe that human beings as we are um now would be the only kind of hominid that's that's here it would make this like the first time ever through all the fossil records we have at this point that there was just one kind of hominid you know what i mean like it seems to me like it's not far-fetched to believe that there could be other variations or crossings of the such. Well, something that's really interesting when you're looking at the dwarf stuff is there's actually a race of hominins uh, that were literally called hobbits when they were yeah. discovered. And then it was uh, Homo florensiensis. Right. And what's fascinating is that's a, a that's a fairly time, that's a fairly new like within like the last uh 20 you know, or 30 20 years, years yeah. yeah but what's really interesting is every couple years um someone finds new evidence from indonesia where they were said to be that they were a lot more recent than we thought and then yeah, it starts bringing it closer recently i think yeah. the closest was like ten thousand years ago which is not that far away. In, in like a big, in the big scheme of things, it's like ten minutes ago. Right. Right. The Orang so. Pendak remains our best chance at finding another hominid species. I think alive at this point. I would agree, but I would also bring up uh, legends of the Ubu Gogo, which actually are on the island of Flores, where Homo florensiensis was first found, and. They are not described as hairy. They're described to just essentially be small humans. And they're said to actually have trading relations with uh, some of the people that live on the island, which is absolutely fascinating. So I think that it's either the Oren Pendek or the Ebu uh, Gogo. Yeah, I've, I've only seen that name in print or heard it mentioned briefly. Not a whole lot of that. This is the first time I'm getting a, like I've I, I like learned what exactly that is and where it is. It's that pretty is, obscure, that is really and it's unfortunate. Well, sure. <laughs> sure, especially if this is something that's currently perhaps interacting with us and training. <laughs> you know? There are oh. um, serious scientific expeditions looking for Orang Pendek. Is it this, this case with this with this uh, other thing as well? Um, the Ebu Gogo, I have no idea. It really got the most attention in the 80s. But that was for like a quick second. Right. And then it, it's become very obscure. Mm-hmm. But recently I've noticed that um, in discussions of uh, Homo florensiensis on uh, National Geographic's news site, they bring up Ubu Gogo almost every time. Wow. So uh, cool. I, don't know, I don't know if they've sent out expeditions, but I think that National Somebody Geographic has to be is – I think it is, in fact, taking it seriously, at least. There is a fossil record for some kind of little humanoid, which is um, really puts this topic, as bizarre as it is, kind of a step forward from Bigfoot, because we don't really have a good fossil record. 
No, I I've argued for a while that Gigantopithecus does not fit. I don't. Um, I don't believe it does either. I really don't. It's an interesting idea, but I, I don't think it fits. We don't have much to go on other than witness reports, and uh, those include behavior reports, and mm-hmm. it doesn't act like a giant ape. Well, not just that, but for the Gigantopithecus to have come from uh, China and India, where it was, it would have had to cross the Gobi Desert and through Russia up through the Bering Strait. And while it was a lot calmer back then, it's been estimated that like 80% of the Gigantopithecus's food supply was bamboo and there's not bamboo forests up there right i just don't think it's feasible for the animal to have gone on that long of a journey i mean it's a good theory and it's you know well, hey we could be maybe, proven wrong maybe there are, maybe there are parts of that theory that do hold water i mean the the movement of people into what would become north america i mean it's, it's not crazy to think that they had other you know, there was other groups of people walking beside them as well that would have come across as well, you know. But a giant, yeah, a giant epithecus, I feel at this point. Like, I used to feel like, okay, well, that's feasible. But the more that I've learned about it, like, it feels really unlikely. Right. And, you know, when animals do that type of mass migration, you know, humans and certain other animals that came across with us, they leave a lot of evidence. Sure. Sometimes even more so than when animals are just staying in the same place over a long period of time. Sure. So we would have a lot more evidence if it were the case. And even in the native, what they believe is the native area that Gigantopithecus inhabited, they don't have a whole lot to work with from right. there. They only have various pieces of, of uh, skeletal framework, not a whole... Jawbones you know, and teeth, really. <laughs> Jawbones yeah. and teeth, really. And, you know, I perhaps, think perhaps there could be a mistake in there though. as well. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the area where Gigantopithecus was said to be is incredibly bad for fossils to come about. So a handful of teeth and a jawbone or two is probably all we're ever going to get. Whether we're talking about Bigfoot or we're talking about the albatwitch or these other various small hominids, um, I feel like it seems more scientifically viable with these smaller, you know, these smaller options because we do have like a pretty, a pretty healthy fossil record that this was a thing. And as time's going by, we're, we're getting more evidence that it's closer to us than, than we originally thought. If we're talking about a real creature, the, the caloric yeah. requirements of a, of a smaller exactly. creature make yep. it a, a lot more realistic sure. that, that it could avoid us. It could stay hidden, sure. not just for its size, but the requirements, the caloric requirements of a, a creature the size of Bigfoot. <laughs> is it, isn't that, the, isn't that the, like, you know, it's one of those, it's one of those sort of, it, it's a weird, it's a weird coincidence or an irony that there are so many Bigfoot sightings that Bigfoot gets uh, top billing with with a lot of the a lot of the cryptid attention but it's more scientifically viable that we have little people <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> because yeah, there's well, actually records bigfoot's, of that you know bigfoot's a lot more exciting and you know oh, talking sure. about the caloric intake primates need a massive amount of food because we have such 
large brains and our brains have so much going on all the time that primates in, in the wild are basically constantly eating. They're eating or sleeping and that's more or less all they do every day, all day. And it's insane how much food is needed to support these animals. And an eight foot tall, even if it is a hominid, that would be immense how much food it would require. Yeah, exactly. Right. And the other odd thing about all this is just taking my own, like the reports I've taken from people in my general area. And I'll just take my first book as an example. There's something like, I don't know, 50 to 75 Bigfoot reports, and I've gotten tons more since the book was published, but but at that time. And I think there's like five Albatwitch reports in there. So much rarer uh, these, these things are seen in general. And I think that goes across the board. It's much more common for someone to report a, a Bigfoot <laughs> sighting than, 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 in, than one of these right. little, little creatures. But yet, so, we do so have a fossil obvious record. most obvious is few and far between. <laughs> well, the and, most obvious like likelihood is the one that is the lesser known or reported. Right? It's it's very strange. You it's know? super weird, man. It's super weird. As a lot, you know, like we were talking earlier, like you know, you just like weird just leads to more weird. <laughs> it would seem. Tune in to the Crypto Kid on WCJV. It's Monday nights at. 8 p.m.? 8 p.m. And then you can catch it archived as well on their website and other places around the web. And come out on October 14th to Albatwitch Day. And Colin will be speaking. If any of your listeners are interested in this topic, I'll be covering a lot more in my talk. And I'm going to be talking about some of the um, possibilities of these creatures and you know, just connecting everything. And I'm rather excited about it because this is the first time I'm giving this presentation. I'm yeah, well, we're to excited it. to hear it for sure. Yeah, we'll, we will be there, and listeners should come out and see it as well. It'll be a great talk. We will talk to you again, Colin. Have a good Ooh, night. Thanks for coming on, Colin. Certainly. I had a good time. Thanks good for having me. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. DarkHollerArts.com Intro and background music by Stonebreath. Go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com for more.
Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.